0: You're listening to Bose Podcast, the official podcast of Bose Cavern, Ottawa's Premier Upscale Drinking Society. Now here are your hosts, Matt and Taylor. Hi,
1: diddly and Welcome to the show. I'm Matt LaFrance.
0: I'm Taylor Mitchell, and you are listening to Bose Podcast, the official podcast of Bose Cavern, Ottawa's Premier Upscale Drinking Society. Welcome to the show. <laughs>
1: So we have an exciting show for you, or at least I think is an exciting show, because we're going to be covering the classic Simpsons episode, Homer's Barbershop Quartet, which first aired in 1993. So I believe this is a perennial fan favorite, probably one of their best episodes ever. I know it's one of my personal favorites. So I'm really looking forward to diving into this episode today. So not many people know this, but there are some Beatles references in this episode. No way! I mean, they're, they're, they're quite subtle, and they're easy to miss if you're not paying attention.
0: No way. I I definitely I definitely didn't see that one coming.
1: Of course, I'm joking there because they are blatantly obvious and plentiful and uh, obvious and plentiful is exactly how we like uh, references in The Simpsons. Right. So
0: including an obvious, if not plentiful uh, cameo by George Harrison.
1: Now Harrison is the second cameo in the show from a member of the Beatles. A drummer Ringo Starr had earlier appeared in season two Brush With Greatness as himself, where he responds to Marge's fan letter.
0: And still before Paul and Linda showed up on the show in season seven, I believe.
1: Later, we did get an animated version of John Lennon in Treehouse of Horror 19 in the episode How to Get Ahead in Deadvertising as a ghost or zombie i'm not exactly sure he's voiced by uh, hank azaria we get that great line all we are saying is let's eat some brains instead of uh, give peace a chance
0: and we yes. also we also heard uh a john lennon solo song on the end credits which means that all four beatles have had their voices on the simpsons
1: i should introduce our producer and in-house musician kevin valentine hey kevin
2: hey great to be here
0: again
1: and you're also our resident beatles expert you're going to be uh, helping us through some of these beatles references in homer's barbershop quartet
2: yes and there are there are a lot (laughs) (laughs) well i I loved every single one of them
1: (laughs) (laughs) and there were so many beatles references in this episode because the writer of the episode jeff martin was a huge beatles fan as was the director mark kirkland ...who wanted to ensure that all the Beatles references were accurate. Finally, our last introduction, uh, our resident mixologist and the founder of Bose Cavern... ...my brother from the same other, because he's my brother, Adam LaFrance.
0: Hey, Hello Adam. there.
3: Thanks for having me back.
1: So before we dive in, a few housekeeping items here. First, we need to address the elephant in the room. No, it's not stampy. <laughs> it's COVID. Uh, so because of the recent increase in cases and the new restrictions that have come into force here in Ontario... Uh, we are not all able to be together in the same physical space for recording this episode, yeah. so we're, uh, we're trying to record it remotely. Uh, it was because of COVID that we were late in getting the first episode uh, of this podcast released, and we had to cancel our plans to do a Christmas-themed episode while we worked out some of the logistics of uh, recording. So uh, we're just going to have to save that for next December, I guess. It's a special gift we can wait for. We will soon be able to record new episodes together, uh, rather than each of us in our respective domiciles. Uh, but in the meantime, while we can't all be together in person, we can still share drink and some laughs together uh, as i hope our you our listeners are doing as well and as always if you're sharing a drink while listening to the show please enjoy responsibly so just to highlight how much 2021 sucked on new year's eve last day of the year that horrendous year had to deliver us one final blow by taking betty white less than three weeks shy of her 100th birthday
0: We, we lost we lost one of pbs's you know premier bringers in of of fundraising
1: and that's why I bring her up. I mean, most everyone knows her for her performance as Rose and The Golden Girls, but Betty White was on The Simpsons as a host of a PBS telethon in the episode Missionary Impossible from season 11, where Homer makes a fake donation to PBS just so he can continue to watch Britain's longest running sitcom, Do Shut Up, without being interrupted. And remember, if you, if, you,
0: <laughs> and remember if you watch even one second of PBS without contributing, <laughs> you're a thief, a common thief. <laughs>
1: And then she was back again as herself in season 18 in the episode Homer Odyssey. As you know, you can certainly say that someone lived their life right and was a positive influence in the world. When you die at the age of 99 and people are saying that you passed too soon.
0: It's so true. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I've been hearing people kind of talking about some of the the other personalities we've lost lately. We've lost Bob Saget. We've lost Sydney Poitier. And kind of the first thing that you hear about them is what great people they were. And I I think that's a nice legacy. That's a nice thing to be remembered by when you go.
1: Story about her that I like is how uh, when she had her Variety show back in uh, 1952 on NBC, African American tap dancer Arthur Duncan. Uh, she had on the show, and at that time during the Jim Crow era, a lot of the southern stations threatened to boycott the show. And her response was to give him more airtime. So I mean, <laughs> that's just one of she didn't take any uh, nonsense from anyone, and she had her release and she stood up for them. And she was just we, we truly lost a a wonderful person there. Yeah. So I have to bring up Betty White, just you know, because of what a great person it seems she was from what we all observe, And yes, Bob Saget as well. Uh, He was not on The Simpsons, but there were three really great Bob Saget references on the show. So we had My Sister, My Sitter, the Bob Seger, Bob Saget reference there, which uh, is one of my favorites. We had uh, season 10's Viva Ned Flanders, where Ned says, you know, if he wants to laugh, he'll take Bob Saget. Thank you very much. If you have listened to Bob Saget's comedy, it doesn't seem to me like it would be Ned's thing. It wouldn't be his cup of tea. He
0: had, he had this family friendly image from Full House and America's Funniest on videos, but he was pretty filthy as a comedian. <laughs>
1: he absolutely was. He was raunchy in that. So I somehow have trouble believing that uh, Ned would um, find that humorous, but I don't know, maybe Ned had another side to him that we just didn't see. Um, Season 14, pray anything. Cletus on the the jury there, he's saying, we the jury find that to be America's funniest home video. Back to you, Bob Saget. (laughs) We'll just bring up Bob Saget because again, nobody had anything bad to say about him. He seemed to be a a genuinely good person. And we grew up watching Full House and uh, America's Funniest Home Videos. Of course, he was also the narrator on how I Met Your Mother. So here's to Betty White and here's to uh, Bob Saget.
0: Pour out a little liquor, a little cocktail, if you will.
1: No, nice segue there. So Adam, what Bose Cavern cocktail do you have for us today?
0: Thank
3: okay. you, Matt. Well, see, today's drink is uh, the iconic from that same episode: a single plum floating in perfume served a man's hat. Now you're probably wondering how I make this because uh, I wasn't in the mood to drink perfume. And do you uh, have
0: and do you have many men's hats lying around to just make cocktails in and drink out of? <laughs> Well, you know,
3: uh, I used a plastic hat. So uh, that's a good uh, point because um, regular hats are a bit more porous. I don't think it would hold, it may hold your drink, but not for long. So either you drink quickly or I would recommend using a plastic hat. So uh, this drink did uh, face a few challenges. I uh, said one, um, I didn't want to drink perfume. Although surprisingly enough, uh, I learned perfume is non-toxic according to the label, which that shocked me. I, I assumed it would kill you. So uh, I didn't try it, but I'm like, well, if, you know, it's like good to know just in case. But yeah, so um, we had to think about, well, what do we want instead of perfume? Because uh, let's try for something a little tastier. I sort of based it on a sangria because I thought, okay, well, we want something that, that has a scent to it, something maybe flagrant. So we thought, okay, well, fruits and flowers, maybe that would give it. So what we used is like a uh, bottled red wine. Then we used a uh, cup of brandy. Uh, We used uh, four cups of pineapple juice and uh, a teaspoon of vanilla for the fruit. You know, made like a sangria. So we uh, chopped up some strawberries and some cherries and then left it overnight in the fridge. And we also uh, added some dried lavender because we thought lavender, that kind of, that's a common perfume smell, you know, figured that a uh, lot because again, don't want to use real perfume, but this should uh, do the trick. And uh, another thing we learned is, of course, plums don't float. So a little science for you.
1: You learned that the hard way, huh?
3: <laughs> so our trick was we uh, saved the cork from the wine bottle, you know, waste not, want not and uh, hauled out the plum, put the cork in and there we have it. Now it floats.
1: And, and it is uh, certainly faithful to the show there. We have a floating plum in not perfume, but a edible form of, well, I guess all perfumes edible, you're saying, but uh, (laughs) it has that fragrant perfume quality.
3: Yeah. Well, we gave it, I think uh, it had an aroma that could remind
0: you of perfume. Like there was definitely a a scent to it. So, And of course the real fun is being able to drink anything out of a man's hat, plastic or otherwise. That's really what I'm here for.
3: Because it, you know, we shared and uh, even though it was before COVID, we decided to use glasses, treat it more like a punch bowl was our thought rather than drink directly out of the hat. Seemed like that would be messy. But I don't blame anybody if they want to drink directly out of the hat. No judgment
2: here.
1: And for those listening, uh, if you wanted to find this recipe, it's available on uh, YouTube and there's recipe cards on uh, Instagram and Facebook as well. I also want to say
3: I think this is my favorite uh, drink. It was a uh, Quite tasty. I think I got a um a little blitzed on this one. I did go back for <laughs> seconds,
0: maybe thirds.
1: Well, and Taylor, what did you think of the drink?
0: I enjoyed it. I, I give it a good review. Um, I I'm not a huge sangria person typically, but I enjoyed this one. And uh like I said, I, I the hat just sells it for me. And so does the floating plum. <laughs> I'm all about novelty.
1: And did it have a perfume quality, did you find?
0: It smelled great, as I recall. <laughs>
1: And if I recall, Adam, from our last episode, you said that this was the most popular drink so far to date on your uh, YouTube channel. It has gotten YouTube the most channel. views,
3: yes. And I did get an interesting comment. Somebody recommended using rose water. And, I'm you know, uh, that wasn't the route I went I'm with more of a lavender. But, yeah, rose water, I, uh, I approve. Okay. If someone wants to, uh, you know, do their own version, that's an idea.
1: Yeah, and if anyone out there has done their own version of this drink, uh, hey, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, let's get into the episode. Starting with a quick synopsis of the episode, which begins at the Springfield swap meet, where Bart and Lisa discover an old LP for a group called the B-Sharps with Homer's picture on it. The majority of the episode is spent in flashback, as Homer tells his children the story of how in the summer of 1985, he was in a barbershop quartet with Principal Skinner, Apu, and Barney, which rocketed to fame as they became an overnight worldwide sensation with the release of their single, Baby on Board. Fame is fleeting, however, their star fades and the group breaks up, with everyone returning to their old lives and the B-sharps becoming forgotten. At the end of the episode, back in the present day, Homer calls up his old bandmates and they get together for an impromptu rooftop reunion concert where they perform Baby on Board one last time. So as we said, there are a lot of Beatles references in this. I was just going to talk about some of the non-Beatles references that started at the beginning of the episode with the swap meet. Uh, The first being uh, Mayor Quimby when he uh, greets everyone with the Ich bin ein Springfield swap meet patron, which is, of course, a parody of Ich bin ein Berliner Uh, Speech from uh, John F. Kennedy in West Berlin, 1963. This is the first time that they uh, parodied this. The second time later was uh, they had a uh, flashback in the season nine episode, Simpsons Tide, where uh, Abe Simpson was saying uh, he was on uh, PT 109 when he discovered Kennedy's uh, darkest secret. He's a Nazi. So they like making fun of this uh, particular line. Homer finds a, a box of items for five cents. Uh, the items that he finds in the box included a copy of the Declaration of Independence, Action Comics number one, uh, sold in June 1938 for ten cents. This is the most valuable comic book in the world. It shows birth of Superman. 2014, a copy of this sold on eBay for 3.2 million dollars. Junk. There was the inverted Jenny or upside down Jenny misprint stamps. These were 24 cent stamps of a uh, 1918 Curtis JN4 airplane. Only one pane of a hundred of inverted were ever found, but a block of four of them sold at uh, Robert A. Siegel in 2005 for $2.7 million. Junk. And the last was the Stradivarius violin. Stradivarius? <laughs> Stradivarius. <Stratahoovious>? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Produced by the Italian family Stradivaria from the 17th to 18th century, 1697 Molotar Stradivarius, which was thought to have previously been owned by Napoleon, sold at auction for $3.6 million. So So,
0: if if we had to put a dollar value on this box, this junk box that was found at the flea market, we're- we're upwards of $10 million. I don't think we're even counting the Declaration of Independence there. If
3: uh, I may interrupt, because I know famous on the internet is to say how uh, the Simpsons predict the future. Does that count as predicting that Nicolas Cage would steal the Declaration of Independence? Because that was uh, more than a decade before that movie.
1: Maybe they just got the idea for that movie from this episode. And the the, the last uh, reference I want to say, when um, Principal Skinner finds the prisoner mask that he previously wore in uh, Vietnam internment camp. The prisoner number on it, 24601. That was the prison number of Jean Valjean in Les Miserables.
0: I like that. I didn't know yeah. that one. Yeah, I, didn't I didn't know, know that, that one either.
1: <laughs> Jeez. I didn't know that one, but just when I was doing my research and I found that it's like there is some real attention to detail sometimes. Wow. They, they Who's really, going to know that?
0: They really go all out for the, you know, the 1% of people that are going to see that and and recognize that reference. I I appreciate that. It's, yeah. it's one of those... It's one of those shows that it's an educated person's dream to watch it because you just might find something that you never knew.
1: (laughs) All right. So let's get into the Beatles. So, you know, in advance of this episode, we all watched the new uh, Peter Jackson Beatles documentary. Get Back on Disney+, Plus, which, of course, was compiled from footage from the Let It Be documentary that was filmed in January 1969 by Michael Lindsay Hoggs as the Beatles recorded what at the time was their Get Back album, later titled Let It Be. We have that little bit of a a crash course before (laughs) we launched into our (laughs) Beatles references. Okay, so where to start here? I I think best place to start is at the beginning, right? Did you catch the name of uh, Moe's Tavern? It had been renamed Moe's Cavern. Mm. I, did
0: which, sure. I did catch that. I did catch that. And I I appreciated it because of course we're Bose Cavern. So it's nice to see a most Cavern, but was it Mo's Cavern in any other fa- flashback or that was that unique to this, this well, episode? That
1: was, that was unique to that episode because it was a reference to the Cavern Club, Cavern club. Uh, in, in Liverpool, yeah. inspired by Le Caveau de la Huchette, which is a jazz club in Paris. Uh, it was located in a fruit warehouse cellar. Originally it was a WW2 air raid shelter. Yep, and it, this place was very much associated with the the, the Mercy Beat, and it, this is where Beatles were discovered. I've um, actually
2: uh, I've actually been in the Cavern Club. Oh, you have? Yep, it was a wonderful experience, and they had um, they have live music at I think it was in the afternoon. I went back, and there was this guy that was just playing Beatles covers, and it was a phenomenal experience to be in that room.
1: So the Beatles did 292 appearances between 1961 and 1963 there. And there were some also other very big British acts, uh, the Rolling Stones, the Yardbirds, the Hollies, the Kinks, uh, Black Sabbath, Queen, The Who, and Elton John all performed at the Cavern Club. Yep. And our next reference, uh, Nigel, the manager that uh, Mose that approaches the B-Sharps, was stand-in for Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, who discovered them at the Cavern Club. His family owned uh, music shops, and uh, yeah, in uh, 1961, he, he approached the Beatles. He had absolutely no experience with managing a a band, but he got EMI to uh, to produce their, their their first record. So, uh, I I think though Nigel is a bit of a pastiche between Brian Epstein and George Martin, the uh, the, the producer that made the bit, Beatles' yeah. albums. Yes,
2: well, it was um you you may be mentioning this, but. It was George Martin who walked in and said, gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one.
1: And that was for Please Please Me, right? That's right. Nigel repeats that line. So that's why yeah. I think he's a bit of a hybrid between the two. Yeah. Uh, what's our next reference here? Chief Wiggum. So I mentioned that the band, I don't know, can you call it a band, Barbershop Quartet? The group? The group.
0: I, I, I agree. Yeah. To, to, to me, a band involves actual instruments.
1: Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> cappella and all that. I'm, I'm yeah. going to call it group. Thank you, Taylor. That's actually a better word. <laughs> So the group was uh, the group consisted of Skinner, Apu, Barney, and 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 Homer, but it, it didn't didn't include Barney originally. It included Chief Wiggum, who Nigel suggested they remove because it gave too much of a uh, village people vibe to the barbershop quartet.
0: So Chief Wiggum was kind of the the Pete Best of the B sharps.
1: He was. So yes. Pete Best. Actually, because you recall in the episode where they're uh Wigum Forever, Barney Never. There were um fans that chanted uh yeah. Pete Forever, Ringo Never. At the Cavern Club. Yep. At the Cavern Club. And also Pete is best, which <laughs> Poor Ringo. <laughs> Obvious though. Pete That's... is Pete Best, Pete is best. So yeah. 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 Uh, it's hard I, to, I,
0: it's it's just hard to argue with a last name like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Well, no, you, found you do way. what you can with it. So that, yeah, you, you don't spoil that opportunity. Like if they didn't go Pete is best, it just feels like, you know, you're not trying. Like it's, why... it's right there. It's staring you in the face.
0: Well, that's that's got to be why Ringo came up with the last name Star because, you know, there's another name that's hard to argue with.
1: So Star is a shortening of his name Starkey. Yes. And yep. apparently in his original band, Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, yep. they built a bit around that. He would do like a drum solo and they would call that uh, star Time. <laughs> uh, Ringo's name uh, won the rings. He he wore uh, rings on all his fingers on both hands, and Ringo was his nickname, but then the leader of the band suggested that he legally change his name to that. Mm. So yeah, we have no name change here of, of Barney, although we did have a name change of Apu because he said Nahasapina Petalon would not fit on a marquee, uh, so he suggested changing it to "De Beaumarchais, which if you think about that, is French for of good market. <laughs> oh, So, which I guess reference to the quickie mart. (laughs) But they they find Barney on the men's room floor, which is exactly how they found Ringo's star,
2: right? So I was going to say, I didn't know that one. (laughs) Do you know how they found uh, Ringo? As I recall, I I think it was just, I don't really remember actually, because I I don't think it was in Germany. I think it was, uh, they were performing and his band was on before or whatever. And they did play in Hamburg together. Okay.
1: Ringo was in Al Caldwell's band, The Texans, which changed its name later to Raging Texans, Jet Storm, and the Raging Texans. Rory Storm, so that's Al Caldwell's stage name. Yes. Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. And it was Caldwell who encouraged him to change his name. But yeah, he was the drummer in that band. They played in Hamburg, same time as the the, the Beatles. And they all got along very well. And they actually had Ringo sit in a few times.
2: Yep. Um, but he, now he, I, it wasn't until the recording studio that he became a member of the band.
1: Okay. So if you recall from the episode, they get rid of Wiggum by just driving him out to the middle of nowhere and releasing him like a dog. Yes. <laughs> which, which
2: always makes me
0: sad. It's just so mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, it, it, it makes me sad too. It feels mean, I, I hate that people actually do this with, with pets they no longer want. Oh, that's awful. Yeah, it is awful. But in terms of, you know, this is an awful way to get rid of the member. I don't know if the Beatles were any better because rather than actually tell Pete Best themselves that uh, he's out of the band, they had Brian Epstein do it for them.
2: Yeah, they
0: had their oh, manager do it. That's cold. Yeah, yeah it is.
1: It, it is cold. <laughs> that's cold. It's quite cold. They they even regretted it. Both uh, John Lennon and uh, Paul McCartney later in interviews said that they were kind of cowardly about that. And I don't quite know why Pete was removed. Uh, John Lennon did say that he was uh, initially hired at a necessity, not well, because he his... was any good or not, but it's like he just they needed a drummer and he had a drum set.
2: Well, no, not only that, but his mom, his mom owned uh, the place they were performing at. So she got, she sort of got them their gigs. At least that's what I've heard anyways.
1: I also heard the reason that they kind of got rid of him is that he just didn't fit in. They would all kind of go out and party after, and he kind of kept to himself in that. And He was just a lot more quiet. He wasn't as uh, energetic at them. And uh, he just didn't mesh with them. He didn't have the same vibe in that. Out Pete Best went and in Ringo Starr came and the rest is history. Now, I don't know if it's a direct Beatles reference or not, but after they pick up Barney, they're all wearing matching barbershop. Know, would you call them costumes or yeah, outfits, outfits, I guess? Outfits.
0: outfits, yeah.
1: So they're all wearing matching barbershop think- quartet outfits, which of course, you know, that that's a barbershop quartet, but it also could be a reference to when Brian Epstein picked up the Beatles when he started managing them. He was the one that told them to start wearing matching suits. Yes. Because uh, previously they were like wearing all leather.
0: Yes, yes. <laughs>
1: And uh, it was it was called
2: the teddy boy look at the
1: yeah. time.
0: There's an image to cultivate. He
1: he gave them also other rules. He told them no swearing, no smoking, no drinking or eating on stage, and to do the synchronized bow. And oh. John Lennon didn't want to wear the suit initially. He was very resistant to it. But then later he said, I'll wear a suit, I'll wear a bloody balloon if someone's gonna pay me. <laughs> Uh, Nigel suggests to Homer that he should keep his marriage to Marge a secret because a lot of women are going to want to have sex with him and they want them to think that they can.
0: Well, if I explain it to Marge that way, I'm sure she'll understand.
1: <laughs> Who wouldn't understand? It sounds, you know, reasonable, logical.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's a sacrifice for the greater good. Absolutely. <laughs> you for know, the music. I did it for the music.
1: The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few.
0: Poor Marge. <laughs>
1: and this is a reference to they, they wanted John Lennon's marriage to his first wife, Cynthia Powell, and the birth of his son, Julian, to be kept out of the press yes. because of all the, the the fan base all the all the women who were caught up with the Beatlemania any relationship that the Beatles had had to be kept secret yes uh, and yes that was included that John Lennon was married and had a child probably affected his parenting of Julian I've heard he was <laughs> not the best parent to his first child
0: he was not the best parent and uh you know who knows maybe that has a bit to do with why the whole marriage didn't work out
1: not a very good parent not a very good husband either I guess we can get into that when we get we'll start talking about Yoko Ono. Yeah, Watching Get Back, how do people feel about Yoko? Because I know she gets picked on, kind of, you know, people focus on her as, you know, a part of the readers the, and the, the Beatles broke up. I don't think she really had anything to do with it.
2: No, I, I actually no. found... <laughs> so, yeah, there you go. It, it was, uh, what I found is that, because you hear all these stories about, you know, sort of like her meddling in the, you know, but I, I found the documentary, like she... She joined in like somewhat when when it was appropriate and everything you know, but like for the most part, she was just it almost like like she was there for support really like to sort of but just sort of in the background. So um, I find those stories that people like always mention like how stories yeah I think the documentary sort of shows that they're not exactly true.
1: As uh, the bare naked ladies say, I don't like all these people slagging her for breaking up the Beatles. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I think that everybody loves the scapegoat. And I think that, yeah. um, I think that, you know, she was, she was a woman of color in a, in a, that was, came into the situation of this band of, of white men. I think, I, I think it would be naive to think that that had nothing to do with it.
2: Well, the the, the uh, press, the press in England was definitely, well, racist against her. Like, um, the British
1: media was racist.
0: <laughs>
2: no <kidding>. way. <laughs> Who knew?
1: I find know? that so hard to believe. <laughs>
0: But uh, has anybody seen Yoko Odo's Twitter? It's I've, hilarious.
1: Uh, I've seen a few of her tweets uh, retweeted by others.
0: She's an interesting, an interesting person. An interesting, um, an interesting Twitter feed. Uh she's always encouraging her users to do things like imagine the streets of your hometown and clean them in your mind
1: yoko is represented in this episode with barney's japanese conceptual artist who is the one that orders the single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat which i was really impressed with how mo just reached under the bar counter and pulled that
2: out <laughs> as easy as a beer that's
1: what so you with a in- beer yes and the thing is it was a draft beer and it had the foam and all that and he just reached on their hand there you go i don't know did somebody order a beer just before they came in and couldn't pay for it. So it's just like, I'll just put it here under the counter and, you know, Barney will be in shortly and I'll get a uh, perfume plum hat all ready for his girlfriend, but.
2: Well, I assume he, I assume he knew that Barney was maybe coming. So.
1: I can't
0: say for sure, but I just assume that that efficiency is what he learned in bartender school.
2: (laughs) So
1: I'll say from the documentary, I was very annoyed though, when Yoko did decide to sing because, you know, it was just a lot of it was them goofing around and they tried different sounds and stuff. And, you know, they're just trying to get things to sound right. And every now and then Yoko would get on a mic and just start wailing, just start screeching and screaming and my ears may have bled a little. Like Concept, was,
0: conceptual art.
1: You know, I, I don't think she tagged along with the Beatles and probably that did cause some tension because she's just always there. But I think that was more on John. I think it was John that kind of wanted was, her yeah. to be there. So it, it's not like she insisted to John that she be present. I think they probably found her presence a little off-putting, but we can't assign 100% of the blame of the breakup of the Beatles to them. I mean, if anything, it was just probably more the dueling massive egos of uh, Paul and John.
0: So <laughs> yeah. I... I had a supervisor back in the day, and uh, he was convinced that the Beatles did not break up because of Yoko Ono. The Beatles broke up because of Paul's death in a car accident. We all know the yes. rumors, the Paul's dead rumors. Cuckoo, cuckoo, cuckoo. My former supervisor believed with all his heart that this was true. <laughs> And he would argue with, with you for days that Paul McCartney died in 1967. And, uh, and that- On a
1: related note, a related question. Did they also believe the earth was flat and that the moon landing was <laughs> fake? Well,
0: you know, I didn't, I didn't ask, but, um,
1: I feel like the Venn diagram of yeah. that would just be a circle.
0: <laughs> I think you, I think you might not be wrong on that one.
2: Now, one thing is, is that um, one of the one of the theories, um, or for his death, was that on the back of Sergeant Pepper, or no, in the in the inner fold of Sergeant Pepper, there's a photo of uh, Paul McCartney with a badge on his shoulder that people thought was OPD, officially pronounced dead. However, if you're from Ontario, you can clearly see that's an OPP patch.
0: Of the Ontario, Ontario Provincial, Provincial Police.
2: Police. Exactly. And so, like people from Ontario, you'd see that and know exactly what it is. And obviously that throws out that theory, but yeah. I like
1: that little bit of Canadiana there.
2: Yeah. You, I, I you, forgot that there was there was a story, but I forgot how we got the badge uh, for on, on the costume. But
0: I think you really have to stretch though to just see OPD and think officially pronounced dead. Yeah. Like, is <laughs> yeah. that is that really Maybe I'm wrong. Is that an acronym that's used regularly? Because I, I've i watched a lot of NYPD Blue and I've never heard it.
2: Never. No, I, I don't know. Maybe it was in the 60s. I don't know.
0: And but. everyone loves a good acronym. Oh,
2: yeah.
0: I'm sorry, but your husband was found DOA. Oh, I mean, DWI. I,
1: get I those always mixed get up. those two mixed up. <laughs> so, so on uh, Yoko Ono, of course, uh, Barney's Japanese conceptual artist helped Barney take Barbershop Quartet to, was it New Levels? Mm-hmm. with uh number eight so it's just barney belching and his girlfriend saying number eight and of course that's a reference to revolution nine on the white album with that avant-garde style with all overdubbed vocals and sound effects and, uh, and and what that's their their longest uh official track just over eight minutes yeah. there and uh, i i actually listened to it just before the podcast and Oh my God.
0: <laughs> Once upon a time, I played on a softball team where we all had a walk-up song. So your song would play when you walked up to the plate to go to bed. And somebody so used Revolution much. 9 as his walk-up song.
2: <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so walking in and number nine, number they're nine, walk- exactly. number nine is you're coming in.
0: <laughs> Tell me that's not perfect for a number nine hitter. I love it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good.
1: B-Sharps arrive at uh, JFK Airport for uh, you know, the start of their, their tour. That was a reference to when the Beatles landed at JFK in 1964 before starting their first uh, U.S. tour. That was their first U.S. visit. Uh, that was uh, two days before they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show. And, you know, they were greeted by 3000 fans. And then the, the the interview, they the B-Sharps did obviously mirrored the interview with the Beatles there where they're just kind of, you know, cracking jokes with the reporters and that. Yeah. So, so in that episode, actually, there's a little inconsistency. I don't know if anyone noticed this. Um, they did not come up with their name until after Barney had joined the group, uh, after, you know, other suggestions. They yeah. arrived at the B-sharps because, you know, it sounds funny at first. And then gradually, the more you say it, the less funny it gets. But when they appeared before with Chief Wiggum at the church, the marquee in front of the church had said B-sharps. Oh, was really? Like they hadn't, yes, really. So they, huh. they hadn't picked the name there. So a little Well, Well, uh, I, I hope someone got fired for that. <laughs>
0: Well, a you know, wizard, a
1: wizard a wiz- did it. A wizard too. yeah. <laughs> that explains it, yeah. So, Kevin, I, you probably have a lot to see on this one. Bart asks Homer yeah, what happened. Did they screw up like the Beatles and say that they were bigger than Jesus, which Homer reveals was the name of their second album? <laughs> yes. And I love the album cover on that, which was a parody of the Abbey Road cover. <laughs>
2: yes, yeah, that's right.
0: But they're walking on water, right? They're yes. walking
2: on water, yes, as opposed to a crosswalk.
1: <laughs> but yes, this is all in reference to the controversy uh, when you know John Lennon said the Beatles were bigger than Christianity.
2: Well, uh, uh, more more popular actually. I had the the quote
1: he had here. So, okay. he was doing an interview for the London's Evening Star weekly series back in 1966 titled How Does a Beatle Live? And the quote he said was Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. We're more popular than Jesus right now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. And that caused absolutely no waves in the UK. There was no reaction to this. Zero controversy. No, there was no There yeah. was zero controversy in the United States later when it was picked up by Newsweek and New York Times. When it was republished uh, by Datebook, which was an American teen magazine, and then it was picked up by some of the radio stations in the U.S. South, you know, the, the, the religious right groups latched on. They already hated the Beatles. Yeah. But this was just something that they could use. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, all the bonfires of the, the records and, you know, effigies of the Beatles and you just you know, had all these conservatives going after. So nobody in the UK and, and nobody in you know the West or East Coast of the United States had any problem with this in whatever context it was taken in the US South. OK, now the Beatles were public enemy number one. Yeah,
2: but they were there. Uh, so not long after that, they were on a tour in the South, well, in the States. And oftentimes they feared for their lives. Like there was one story where I forgot something happened where they heard. Some, I, don't, I don't know if it was one of the equipment, whatever, but they thought it sounded like a gunshot. And they thought, "Oh God, someone's gone down, you know, or like someone's been shot. And uh, Ringo Starr said he always tried to keep his ride symbol sort of blocking his head as he was playing in case someone wanted to take a shot at
1: it. Wow. So there's another scene uh, before they replaced Wiggum where they're performing at the the Springfield State Prison. I actually, I I thought that was maybe a reference to the 1968 performance of Johnny Cash when he was at uh, the Folsom State Prison in California, which has absolutely nothing to do with Beatles. And I don't know if that's actually what they were thinking when they put that in, but it's just, when I saw that, that's immediately what I thought. It was a, a Johnny Cash reference. There. What else did we have for Beatles references in that? Well, of course, we had George Harrison, yes. who was at the, the the Grammy Awards. He met Homer.
0: Oh my god! Oh my god! Where did you get that brownie? <laughs>
2: Over there, there's a big pile of them.
0: What a nice fellow.
2: And of course, it's been done.
1: We'll get into that, I guess, with the last <laughs> reference with the, yes, the, the yes. rooftop performance. Yeah, I mean, after uh, having Ringo on, uh, and, and originally the episode uh, from season two, Brush with Greatness, where they had Ringo, originally they didn't think they were going to have Ringo. So they just wrote in like a little bit for him. Mm-hmm. And they showed uh, his manager the script, shared it with Ringo, and Ringo loved it, and he agreed to do it. So they immediately wrote more lines for him. But after that, they were like determined to get another Beatle into uh, the recording studio. and yep, George agreed to do it, but it was supposed to be a secret. So the producers weren't supposed to tell anyone, uh, anyone in the writing room that George Harrison... Matt Groening didn't get the memo. So he goes in and he meets George Harrison. And then later he just like beelines right over the writing room. It's like, guys, guess who I just met? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, apparently, according to Groening, George Harrison was kind of glum when he was recording his bit because everyone was asking him questions about the Beatles. Oh, yes. But Groening asked him about Wonderwall music, uh, one of his uh, solo albums. And that just perked him right is, up because is, nobody is, ever asked him about that one. And, is, and he was passionate about it. He wanted to to talk about it so that really brought him out of his shell there and just like you know suddenly you know he just was very upbeat
2: and positive it was uh it was actually his first solo album in uh, 1968 and it was before
0: all things so, must pass
2: yeah i was gonna say most people considered like all things must pass to be his first and that was his first major hit like to biggest you know one of the biggest albums of all time but um in 68 yeah he released a one called wonderwall i think it was mostly experimental music in some form anyways i'm not sure but yeah. I, I
1: actually wanted to talk a bit more about that uh, grammy awards show where um, george harrison showed up a- at the after party i don't know if anyone noticed some of the characters that were in the background there was aerosmith who previously oh, appeared really? in season three's <laughs> flaming Moes, spinal tap Oh. <laughs> uh, from the movie this is spinal tap by Rob Reiner which uh, Harry Shearer played when the characters in that so they were animated yes. there <laughs> and Michael Jackson but I'm putting that in quotations because it was actually Leon Kaprowski that was in the background uh-huh. <laughs> there <laughs> so all the, I love all... that yeah yeah so I love I love those kind of just references in the background that they have sometimes so the 29th annual grammy awards which was uh, February 24th 1987 so I feel like there's a bit of inconsistency because at the end of the story, Homer says, you know, they're five and a half weeks at the top, but it starts off in 1985 and it definitely spans to 1987. That award (laughs) show was hosted by the delightful Billy Crystal, by the way. where Paul Simon won for a best album for Graceland that year.
2: Was Dexie's Midnight Runners in the writing? So that's one of the things. Yes, you recall, uh,
1: Little Lisa says that they beat Dexie's Midnight Runners. Uh, They were not in the category that uh, the the, the B-sharps were in. If you recall, that was Outstanding Soul, Spoken Word, or Barbershop Album. And in fact... (laughs) Dexy's Midnight Runners, you know, they had the uh, two number one hits, the 1980 song, Geno and the 1982, of course, everyone knows this one. Come on, Eileen from their 2 I A album. Their last album, 1985, Don't Stand Me Down with their third album, which which bombed. Uh, they were kind of late to the game to release like a three minute edit of their 12 minutes. This is what she's like so that they could put that on like the radio play. So it was a total commercial failure and the band broke up shortly after that. So they would not have been nominated for anything no. at the 1987 I- Grammys because they had really least nothing in 86 and and of course there is no category like that i think they should introduce this category outstanding soul spoken word or barbershop album but that's just my opinion
0: is there a category or um is there an award that embraces barbershop as a medium
1: there is not no unfortunately there is not tragic so how about we get to the breakup the b sharps broke up by reading in us weekly hot or not that they were not that's not how the beatles broke up of course is it kevin
2: Not that I recall.
1: <laughs> so I, I guess there's not really an official breakup for the Beatles. It, it was kind of a, a slow process.
2: The sort of the official would be uh, Paul McCartney announcing it um, in, in the news just uh, before. Actually, uh, I think it was just before Let It Be, the album was released.
1: It was April 1970 when he was talking about his solo album, McCartney. Mm-hmm. And and that played a part in their breakup, too, because he kind of recorded that in secret. Yes. And then he announced to them that he was releasing that. And they already had a schedule of releases of you know Beatles albums and solo works. So they were set to release uh, stars, Ringo stars solo uh, Sentimental Journey uh, in May. And they didn't want McCartney releasing his album before that. So they kind of asked yes. him to just push it off. And he got enraged.
2: Yeah, they they sent Ringo around. um, Yeah. Well, no, sorry. That was actually Ringo's idea because they were actually going to send just one of the representatives over to deliver the message. But Ringo thought, you know, more personal, I'll go deliver it myself. And that didn't go well. (laughs) No, it did not go well at all. I guess, what, did they figure that? How can
1: anyone get mad at Ringo?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. That's the thing. Well, Uh, That that was
1: my impression from the documentary is uh, because, you know, there was all like this, bit of tension going on between uh, John and Paul George, you know, had a bit of a fit there and he walked off for yeah. a few days and Ringo's just kind of there in the background, you know, just sitting there at his drum set. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's what? like he's, I guess Ringo was what the, 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 easygoing one in the group.
2: Yeah. Well, Although, he...
1: uh, well Ringo was the first one to, to leave the, the group, right? Yes.
2: Uh, during the white album. And he, um, For what, for like a week? uh, Yeah, like it's sort of, he said, I'm quitting the band. And then he went away somewhere. And then when he came back, they put flowers on his drum set saying, you're (laughs) the best drummer in the world. And um, he really is
1: one of the best drummers in the world.
2: Well, he is. No, I I totally agree. And um, after the Beatles broke up, uh, Ringo was the only one really that would, that performed on all their albums. Well, I'm um, sorry, maybe not Paul McCartney's, but Paul McCartney performed in one of his. So mm-hmm. they all remained friends with R- Ringo, like lost, even to this day, Paul and Ringo are still friends. So
1: so the the breakup process was slow for them. But yes, April 10th, 1970s, some statement that McCartney made on his interview for his release, which, you know, was taken by the press to mean, oh, this is it. The Beatles had broken up. I, I guess it's kind of the official date of it. But yeah, it, well, you know, watching the documentary and just, you know, what we know of the Beatles, it, it's much more complicated than
2: that. Very
1: much so. Uh, So our last reference, our last Beatles reference in the episode, of course, is after Homer is done telling Bart and Lisa the story, he calls up uh, everyone and they get together for another performance on the rooftop, which uh, was meant to mirror the uh, January 30th, 1969 performance of the Beatles on the roof of Apple Corp. Uh, their forty-two minute performance during lunchtime—the uh, the songs that they had worked out for uh, the Get Back album—later, let it be un- until the metro police finally uh, you know, stopped the performance there. Yeah, I-, I loved this scene in The Simpsons because um, everyone on the rooftop is wearing the exact same clothes <laughs> that the Beatles were wearing when they did their rooftop performance.
2: Yes, which I think <laughs> I think in the end, well, maybe not for all of them, but I I know. For a lot of them, it was actually their girlfriends or their wives' clothes or jackets. Well, definitely <laughs> that really the makes fur. Sense. Well, the, the, definitely the fur. Was it John Lennon wearing the fur coat? Uh, that I think that was Yoko's. Yeah,
1: uh, Paul was the only one not wearing a coat. He was just okay. wearing his a uh, uh, black suit there.
2: Uh, George was in red. No, Ringo
1: had the red jacket. Oh, on.
2: Ringo had the red jacket. Okay.
1: Okay. Yeah. Anyway, everyone in the the, the Simpsons scene was wearing exactly what the Beatles were wearing that. <laughs> and then, you know, at the end, when everything fades to black, we hear Homer going, I, I'd like to thank you on behalf of the group. And I hope we pass the audition, which, of course, is what John said at the end of the rooftop performance.
2: Yes. And it was also on the Let It Be album at the end.
1: So jam packed full of Beatles references from this.
2: There's one more. Oh, uh, the album that they found at the uh, at the flea market. Um, oh yes, yes, yes. Was from one of the American albums, uh, Meet the Beatles. The front was, and the back was based on the Sergeant Pepper The back of Sergeant Pepper album.
1: And I believe. People say that Meet the Beatles was their first U.S. album, but it wasn't. There was another album released that just beat it out. So technically it's their second.
2: If I recall correctly as well, the, the first one wasn't. So Meet, Meet the Beatles was the first Capitol record, but there was one before that. I think it was released by someone, uh, VJ or something. I can't remember exactly what the the distributor was.
3: But yeah.
1: Introducing the Beatles.
2: Oh, is that what it's called? The, oh, the, the, first the album one. was
1: the official first U.S. album of the Beatles was called Introducing the Beatles, and Meet the Beatles was second. But yes, I, everyone knows Meet the Beatles more, and yes, the the cover art uh, for the B sharps mirrored that. Yes. That, that's the episode jam full of uh, Beatles references. So I guess you could enjoy this episode on multiple levels. If you're a, a fan of the Beatles, then you just loved picking up on all the references within it.
2: Oh, definitely. Definitely.
1: Um, but, you know, even that, take that out and, and still a fun episode. I always liked the ones where they flashed back to the 80s. This is the third episode. I mean, first was uh, I Married Marge, uh, which was set in like 1980, 81, where they had the mm-hmm. Bart's birth right and they included references there like uh the empire strikes back and the I shot JR actually that that when Homer rips off his shirt and he has the I shot JR t-shirt underneath that is like one of my favorite Simpsons references <laughs> even though I never I never watched Dallas <laughs> I was
2: gonna say I've never seen it
0: but and then there's Lisa's first word which is uh also a great flashback episode yes
1: season four yes yes, yes. we've got um the mash finale reference and and the uh the 1984 summer olympics so of course, then we get this episode, uh, which I guess was the, the the fourth flashback. The first one was set in the 70s when Homer and Marge meet in high school.
0: Then I'm going to I'm going to actually cop to something. I actually prefer the Rolling Stones to the Beatles. <laughs> <gasps>
2: get out right. no, just kidding. <laughs> just you
0: kidding. know, I, I had a music professor um, back in the day who told us that the Beatles music was so perfect, technically speaking, and the Rolling Stones music was a bit more. It was a bit more raw and real. And I've always appreciated that. So uh, I agree. With, all res- with all due respect to uh, the Fab Four, um, my heart at this moment lies with the Rolling Stones. But uh, with that said, this is still one of my favorite episodes. And it contains maybe my all-time favorite Simpsons original song with Baby on board. Mm. So,
1: No, actually, I was going to say, so I-, I forgot to mention that. So this episode was written by Jeff Martin. Um, we actually mentioned in the previous podcast that he wrote the Cheers parody song. For the oh, Flaming mo, Right, right. He wrote this episode, including he wrote Baby on Board. I love this part. He wrote with The Simpsons. He was there from uh, season two to season five. He's written other songs. like He did all the songs for season four episode Streetcar Named Marge. And he, he left the show. He then later came back. So at the time that he wrote Baby on Board, and apparently when he wrote some of the other songs for The Simpsons, he did it in the recording studio. He had his daughter, Samantha, with him like on his knee there as he was writing music. So he returned to the show um, for season 32 with the episode Yokel Hero, which he wrote with his daughter, Samantha Martin. So the inspiration for Baby On Board has now grown up and has written an episode for The Simpsons.
0: I love it. It's we, the we, circle of life.
1: It's the circle of life, absolutely.
0: <laughs> it's how things are meant to work in this beautiful Simpsons universe where the show goes on for 30 plus years. It's the uh, next generation.
1: And The music for all the barbershop songs. Uh, so we had uh, Goodbye My Coney Island Baby. We had You're the Flower of My Heart Sweet Adeline. All the songs were performed by The Dapper Dance. That is the Barbershop Quartet that is in Disneyland in Anaheim, part of the Magic Kingdom on the, the Main Street USA, doing many performances every day. So members of that Barbershop Quartet, Jim Campbell, George Conamu, Shelby Grimm, and uh, Don Jordan did all the singing voices in that episode. thing about um, the Dapper Dance, it's been around since 1959, and obviously the membership has changed in that. They're still doing performances, and they get a lot of requests for baby on board. <laughs> Which they are happy to oblige and sing that. So with all that, Taylor, how do you feel about a little trivia?
0: Oh, come at me. I am—I was born ready for this one.
1: <laughs> I guess we're going to make this as part of the, the show, like a, a regular thing that we uh, will do a bombardment of trivia. So, And to our listeners, feel free to play along. Test your Simpsons knowledge. You can either pause after the questions or just shout out quickly, or just tell yourself after that you knew the correct answer all along. So let's go. Okay, Taylor, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Number one. What was Marge selling at the swap meet?
0: Wishbone necklaces. Your teenage son or daughter will find them really cool. (laughs) Correct.
1: (laughs) See, you got off to a good start. Okay. At the swap meet, can you name one of the trading cards that Nen Flanders was giving away?
0: A Methuselah rookie card. Yeah. Who knew learning about religion could be so much fun? (laughs) (laughs) Do
1: you remember what the other card was?
0: Uh, Joseph of Arimathea.
1: Oh, awesome! Mm. We're gonna give you bonus points for that one. You got it.
0: Thank you, thank you.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, what song was Barton and Lisa listening to before they discovered the B Sharp's album?
0: What song were they listening to before? Oh, um, it was the the Rodent Invasion, uh, Melvin and the Squirrels.
1: Yes, they were singing Yankee Doodle.
0: Yes, <laughs> part part Good. of the Rodent Invasion of the of the nineteen sixties.
1: So, what are we at now? Question four. So according to Homer, when he was telling the story about the B-Sharps to Lisa and Bart, he said rock and roll had become stagnant. Then he says something was seven years away. Barbershop filled the void. So what was that thing that was seven years away?
0: Achy breaky heart.
1: Yes. You're on fire tonight.
0: <laughs> Classic episode.
1: So question number five. We already mentioned that uh, the manager, Nigel, said that Homer should hide his marriage to uh, Marge. Uh, what name did Nigel refer to Marge as?
0: Buffant betty
1: you are just you're you're getting you're getting them all you're firing in all cylinders here had
0: to had to make up for for my disappointing showing on our our premiere episode
1: (laughs) i should have made the questions harder maybe i'm going to raise the bar a little here before i was just going to say if you could name one but now i want you to name all of them who auditioned to replace chief wiggum
0: okay how many were there
1: there were four
0: four okay grandpa simpson
1: do you remember what he's saying
0: old mcdonald had a farm
1: yep it was a uh, swinging version of it.
0: A swinging version of it. Um, Jasper singing theme from a summer place.
1: Theme from a summer <laughs> place.
0: <laughs> that cracks me up every single time. Um, one of them was Chief Wigam as Doctor Doolittle.
1: That's correct.
0: And one fourth, more.
3: The fourth. Need to phone
0: a friend. I think, I think I might. I think I might have to phone a friend on that one.
1: Okay, Adam or <laughs> Kevin.
3: It's uh, groundskeeper Willie singing downtown, or oh, uh, to be more accurate, Dune tune.
1: Yes, Downtown by Petula Clark. Yes, so Dune, Dune, Dune tune. Ah. Okay, so we all know that they settled on the B sharps as the name of their uh, barbershop quartet. What alternative name did Nigel suggest?
0: Handsome Homer Simpson plus three.
1: I would be very disappointed if you didn't get this one, <laughs> considering you used it in your trivia group.
0: We we did. We used that as our team name briefly. Yeah.
1: Okay, we're at uh, number eight here. What were the B-sharps recording before they broke up?
0: What were they recording before they broke up? Um,
1: they were singing a song about somebody and it was worse than their that song about Mr. T.
0: Yeah, I have it in my head. Um, General, yeah, I have it in my head. I can't think of the name in it.
1: Adam, you're going to chime in?
3: Uh, if I remember, it was Surgeon General Coop. Surgeon General
0: Coop.
1: Surgeon General C. Everett Coop. For all the latest medical poop, call Surgeon General C. Everett Coop poop poop Padoop.
3: I thought they would have went with medical scoop, you know, sound information. I don't know why they went with poop.
1: I don't know. They just did. Okay. Number nine, before the B-Sharps met on the rooftop, when was the last time they were all together?
0: Last year. That stupid damn Edna special.
1: <laughs> last one. Number 10. What did the rooftop concert distract from? So there was another event going on.
0: The human fly, and it kind of sucked for him because he was up all night dying his underwear.
1: I know. I felt bad for him.
0: <laughs> I, okay. I think I think that that would, uh, you know, I, I would find that a little bit distressing if I had sp- stayed up all night planning this public event, and I want everyone's eyes on me, and instead I am distracted by the comeback concert of the century, or at least <laughs> of the season.
1: Yeah. I don't know if we'll go century, but you know, <laughs> it was certainly a big thing. We
0: don't know. We don't know just how big the B sharps were.
1: Uh, at least in real life, the Metro Police were a lot more polite about breaking up the 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 performance there. They didn't break out the tear gas.
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna hit you with a bonus question because these are obviously were too easy. And this <laughs> one's a really hard one because this is one where like it's nothing that was said in the episode. You'd basically have to like freeze frame it. But as you recall, there was a a newsboy there and he was saying extra extra B sharps perform on rooftop. Some guy grabs the newspaper, and uh, it has nothing to do with the B sharps. So, what was the actual headline on that newspaper? Ooh, and I don't think you're gonna get it.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. I don't. I don't think. Get- I
1: know that's why I saved it for a bonus question. I don't think I'm
0: gonna get it either. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, you have to like freeze frame it on that. So, uh, Adam or Kevin? No, can, I can't help you out. I can't. Yeah. Stop. Oh, okay. You got me. Okay, yeah, this
3: is uh, this too. is really a head scratcher.
1: <laughs> okay, it says snowstorm hits Midwest. <laughs>
0: Okay. Okay. <laughs> Snowmageddon. Well, back when, back when the storm was upgraded from a winter wonderland to a class three killstorm.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, that's the show. We had fun talking about the Beatles-laden episode, Homer's Barbershop Quartet, and uh, talking about the Beatles as well. If you haven't had a chance yet, I recommend watching the three-part Beatles documentary by Peter Jackson, Get Back, available on Disney+. Plus. Uh, thank you to my co-host, Taylor Mitchell, our producer, Kevin Valentine, who is also our Beatles expert today, and to Adam LaFrance presenting the single plum floating in perfume served in a man's hat. Uh, this recipe and more can be found at Bo's Cabin on YouTube, and there's also recipe cards on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Please enjoy responsibly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Matt LaFrance saying thanks for joining us. Take care. We'll be talking with you again soon. Bye for now.